Your film is now ready to be shown. Good evening. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. This is a special episode of the podcast. On October 7th, Tech Policy Press hosted a mini-conference called Reconciling Social Media and Democracy. While various solutions to problems at the intersection of social media and democracy are under consideration, from regulation to antitrust action, some experts are enthusiastic about the opportunity to create a new social media ecosystem that relies less on centrally managed platforms like Facebook and more on decentralized, interoperable services and components. The first discussion at this event took on the notion of middleware for content moderation and featured Francis Fukuyama, Natalie Marischal, Daphne Keller, and Richard Reisman. This second session focuses on ideas put forward by Joan Donovan and Robert Ferris in the Journal of Democracy in an article titled Quarantining Misinformation that is itself a response to the idea of decentralization or unbundling of social media platforms to create that middleware layer of software and services to manage content moderation. You'll hear my opening for the session and then the panel. Subscribe to the Tech Policy Press podcast via your favorite podcast service for additional panels from the event, and be sure to subscribe to our newsletter at techpolicy.press. Now, let's get into the discussion. Our next two folks who are Rob Ferris and Joan Donovan. Uh, So, Rob, welcome very much uh, to you. Uh, the two of you uh, brought forward a kind of different point of view on this general proposal of decentralization, um, middleware, unbundling um, in your piece, quarantining misinformation. Uh, for those of you who don't know these folks, of course, Joan Donovan, research director of the Shorentine Center on Media, Politics and Public Policy at Harvard Kennedy School, Robert Barris. Uh, senior researcher at the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, Public Policy, and an affiliate of the Berkman Klein Center. Uh, so very, very grateful to have you both here. Um, and of course, you're going to talk to us a little bit. Your opening salvos can be, to some extent, in response to uh, what maybe you've, some of the things you've just heard, uh, but also to dive deep on this problem of disinformation and misinformation. And I think of both of you as people who have been um, not just thinking about this problem from a uh, purely theoretical or academic perspective, but also have been working with people in communities and in uh, civic organizations that have been deeply affected by these issues. And it's worth us uh, thinking about that, uh, maybe bring this conversation uh, a little bit towards that, uh, towards the fact that we're having a theoretical conversation on some level, but there are uh, there's blood and bones at stake here. Um, you know what happens on the ground in, in our communities. So I may uh, uh, turn it first. Uh, which which you would like to go first, uh, Robert Joan? I'm gonna kick things off, Justin, and then Robert Joan. Excellent. Thank you. Delighted to be here and join this rich, rich conversation with so many smart people. I'm really heartened that so many great minds are are looking at this this problem. So. Um, I want to take a pretty broad look at this and say that the middleware idea is couched within kind of the age old question of what platforms ought to be. Should they be completely neutral platforms to carry all speech or should they be closer to media uh, entities that are actually responsible for the content that resides on their platforms? 
Um, right now, we're kind of in a middle zone where they're kind of sort of responsible for the content on their platforms. And I think that a lot of the focus of the ire on platforms right now is pointing in different directions. I think from one side of the political spectrum, people are saying platforms are blocking way too much content. They need and should be compelled to be neutral platforms. The other side of the political conversation is saying, no, in fact, platforms are not doing a good enough job of policing their platforms and removing harmful content. I think a lot of the conversation started today. I think one of the premises that Professor Fukuyama starts with is that long-term having platforms that are not neutral is not tenable. I think a lot of the, the conclusions, the logic that follows from that, if you start from that premise, uh, make a lot of sense. I'm not sure I'm ready to start from that premise. Um, and I think we ought to be asking that very question is, would removing the current levels of content moderation and turning it over to middleware, would that improve the world with, that we live in? Another way to ask the question is if we're to turn the, the, uh, the clock back until the fall of 2020, would we, we be happier with middleware, middleware providers that permitted the free dissemination of content that said the election is stolen and we have to resist this tyranny? For me, that would not be an improvement in the world. And so I guess I'm questioning the basic premise that platforms must be neutral as a normative um, element. Another related point I'd like to make is that I think a lot of this conversation is taking issue with the current normative situation that we have, which is a private ordering. It's media platforms doing as is their right to moderate content. And the question before us is, given that there's a lot of lawful but awful content that a lot of people think ought to be moderated, and there's a lot of lawful but awful content that people don't believe should be moderated, that this is being left to private entities. And do we have a public intervention that we think could improve the state of the world? That, I think, is the debate we're having today. And uh, to assume that right now things are so dire that we have to do something, I kind of agree with that. But whatever it is we do, we, we need to be pretty well convinced that what we're doing is actually going to improve the world around us. There's much we agree on here. Uh, I think we agree that the platforms are not, not well suited for bearing the degree of responsibility, which is now currently in their laps. That point, I think, is very eloquently made by uh, Siva Vedanathan long ago, and I, I tend to agree with that quite well. I also agree with uh, Professor Fukuyama that there needs to, we need to be thinking about institutional responses to this, which is like, how do all the various pieces fit together so we're pushing things in the right direction? wholeheartedly agree with that. I'm not sure what the best institutional response is to that. And I think we ought to be leaning towards that. I think it would be a mistake to assume that there is not institutions that are trying to guide the social norms and these private decisions that are being made. 
there's a lot of social pressure. There's March market pressure that the companies are are born that are being born upon these companies, and they're responding to that. Does that work great? Nah, it doesn't. Um, the question is, how can we improve upon that? And is there a government level uh, um, intervention that would improve upon that? I'm not so convinced. I haven't heard it yet. Um, the middleware idea um, sounds pretty good in, in some respects. I think the idea of having more control, uh, giving users more control over what they see and how their um, their their feeds are curated, uh, that makes good sense to me. Another feature I like about them is the notion that there would be better attribution for content that people are seeing rather than having kind of the amorphous algorithm um, feeding people or Facebook. I saw it on Facebook without understanding who it was that thought this was good content that people ought to be looking at. I think that might be helpful um, to implement middleware to the detriment of current content regulation. I'm sorry, current content moderation by companies. I'm not there yet at all. So I would have to be convinced on that as well. Um, I think the last question, which I want to turn over to Joan, is are we ready to admit that large-scale algorithmic curation of content has failed, that the marketplace of, ideal, of ideas has failed, and if so, what the hell do we do about that? And I guess that's where I am. Joan, please clean up the mess that I've left you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Rob. And um, such a rosy picture. Really want to thank everybody, particularly the, the opening speakers for getting this kicked off. And um, I'm a big fan of Mary Gray's work. Uh, her book, Ghost Work, has really made me think a lot about where humans should be in the conversation here. Uh, I don't think humans should just be in the conversation about content moderators, but I think we should think more holistically about, as you were saying, Rob, the point of a platform and the point of all of this talk and where have we traditionally gone in society to have those who organize knowledge uh, be at the center of, of of the conversation. And so I've often wanted to bring more librarians into the conversation here. Twitter's running a, a little bit of an experiment related to their trends and curators and has hired some information uh, specialists, librarian types to start writing the descriptions and take a second look there. We are not, of course, going to be able to moderate all the things. That is not the point. It shouldn't be the point, uh, as Daphne was saying. Yeah, there's, you know, someone's cousin is on Facebook and they're wrong some of the time. Sure, they should be allowed to be wrong some of the time. For me, it's one of, is it the content that is life and death? If it is, we need some better curation. I think we should look to librarians for help with that. I think the middleware solution of adding technology on top of technology, creating another industry that's codependent upon uh, these platforms and upon this data um, regime is, is just, uh, it's going to bring more problems than it's worth. I'm obviously the most unpopular um, academic in this field because I have argued against 
uh, allowing Facebook to collect so much data on people so long as they share it with researchers. I think that uh, we do need some regulation that deals with um, data privacy in such a way so that if you are running a product, you shouldn't be able to collect more data than is needed to run the actual product. And there should be some uh, expiration of that data built in. And so I think that as we're thinking about this conversation, we should talk about where more people need to be put into the system, where we need better uh, and more, more accurate uh, knowledge-based curation systems, especially around things like a pandemic or, or um, information that is life and death. And then uh, finally, I think that we have to take seriously the fact that each platform company took a different road towards how they would either support or uh, moderate political speech. And if we had, and this is the paradox of data, of course, if we had access to the right kinds of data, we could potentially know a lot more about how many people are exposed to which kinds of misinformation and, and how many people that misinformation um, incited and uh, to what degree then should we hold political figures accountable for that kind of uh, behavior online that leads to, in some cases, criminal activity. Now, that's a lot to contend with given the fact that people who talk about this stuff sometimes don't look at it in its depths and details. Um, and what we're dealing with here is, of course, a problem bigger than Facebook, bigger than Twitter, even bigger than Google. Uh, it extends across all of these minor apps. Uh, it extends across the, the ones that we already know that are bad places that spew a lot of disinformation like uh, Parler or Gab or 4chan or, or any of the versions of, of those message boards that help white supremacists get organized. The main stage platforms that we're talking about generally are just the delivery systems or the distribution systems or the spaces where they go to harass people. Uh, but we do have a problem with other platforms like Twitch and Discord, etc. So uh, that isn't a lot of solutions, but I do think that there are ways in which we could start to think about our information environment and the actors within it differently. I also think that I'm in support of looking at technological design uh, as a product and not just simply as magic and innovation and uh, seeing if there is a way to create some kind of regulation or policy options that enforce essentially what the platforms have already promised, which is that they're going to have terms of service and they're going to apply them evenly to different people. I think the whitelist uh, that uh, the whistleblower has given a wink and a nod to is a really important piece of the puzzle here when we talk about who gets to behave how and how people in power tend to be able to one, reach the most people on these platforms and two, exploit it to their own political ends. I'll cut myself off there, Justin, because I think we're at our 15 minutes. 
Rob, you, you said, you know, are we ready to acknowledge that uh, the marketplace of ideas is broken? I just want to maybe push you on that a little bit in your piece. You write, uh, you know, in our view, the evidence clearly shows the marketplace of ideas in the U.S. is broken and that more speech, uh, something which the Internet has been wildly successful at producing, has not been a, a, a remedy for bad speech. So I don't know if I've put you in a box there, but kind of do, do you think that that's right? Are we are we at that point where we can we can go ahead and draw a line under that? Uh, I'm there. Um, I, I think that certainly the marketplace of ideas has not produced the outcomes that we had hoped that it would. I think the the idea of open discourse and discussion on the internet to resolve problems and to surface better ideas and and sink bad ideas, uh, I think in practice has not happened. Joan, you mentioned this idea of librarians um, in your piece. You you maybe address Greta's comment here. You know that obviously librarians are overworked, underpaid. Um, you actually imagine that, that maybe there's some carve out for thousands more to be hired and put into these roles. Can you imagine that as part of a kind of public interest reform? I mean, you know, it's it, the, Professor Fukuyama kind of lays it out. You got to have short, middle, and long games here. If the long game is to ensure that no company is able to dominate the information space in such a way that they can cut off any kind of communication across several major platforms, including, you know, WhatsApp and Instagram, um, then that's a long game, right? Doesn't mean it shouldn't be tried, but it should be happening in tandem. I've advocated for thinking through the taxonomies of content and users um, from an information science perspective for a while, but I'm not the only one doing this. Sarah Roberts, who wrote behind the screen about content moderation, coined the term commercial content moderation. She's been studying it for a decade now. She thinks that there's a different role here uh, for people to play, uh, as well as Sophia Noble, the portion of algorithms of oppression is devoted towards thinking about, well, what would search look like if uh, librarians were in charge of content taxonomies? Because, you know, the big challenge in 2016, 2017, when everybody was yelling about fake news was how easy it was to game these systems. Because what's incredibly important to understand is that things like, like Facebook and, and YouTube and, and Twitter are incredibly predictable. Uh, and that's why you see activists as far back as 20, 2011 were able to game algorithmic trending uh, during the Egyptian revolt and and uh, Occupy. It, you just needed to have about a thousand people at the same time doing the same thing. They built middleware. They built a co-tweet and they used Hootsuite in order to do these kinds of uh, media manipulation, uh, low-tech hacking, right? Uh, eventually brands start doing it, then politicians, right? And so we're 10 years into this um, moment where these products are built in such a way that it it advantages uh, media manipulators and disinformers because they're so easy to manipulate if you can either push a crowd to do it or fake a crowd. Um, There's excellent research out of, shoot, I think it was in, was it NYU that did the follower factory? 
Oh, uh, Follower Factory. Yes. Uh, are, yeah. You're thinking about um, uh, Columbia, Mark Hansen, I think. Mark Hansen. Yeah. yeah. So sorry. Um, but yeah, the Follower Factory model, right? Where you have this entire industry of fake accounts and fake engagements. So we're not rec- we're not reckoning with a system that is so pure in its design and in its motives that it hasn't given birth to an already dark middleware world, right? As search engine optimization uh, companies, as social media experts. Uh, so what we're talking about, if we go the middle route, is more institutionalization of some of those processes and, and products. So I want to maybe push you in and Rob a little bit on this because, you know, I'm thinking a little bit about your your disinfo defense league you've been uh, a part of and played a role in, which now I think was over 200 organizations that uh, are a loose kind of consortium that, that think about disinformation problems together, try to apply theory into practice. Lots of different groups, especially groups that are concerned about the effect of disinformation on black people, people of color, uh, you know, LGBTQ, other other minorities, especially people are organizing themselves to confront these problems. There are government entities that have organized. We're aware that, you know, of course, in the Israeli Palestinian uh, conflict in this last round of, of violence, there was a real asymmetry between what the Israeli cyber defense you know, unit was able to do in terms of flagging posts that it didn't quite like to Facebook versus the degree of organization on the on the Palestinian side to, to do anything similar, which may have contributed to an asymmetry in takedowns, uh, you know, in that particular environment. There's there so there's like a civil government kind of middleware that's already working out there, and yet it's not really platformed in a way. It's all like backdoor conversations, deals, you know, soft power. Uh, who knows somebody at the platform who has the right email address to complain to? I don't know. Can you imagine any of that being mediated in a way or given tools uh, in this in this future? Yeah, I mean, uh, the Disinfo Defense League was born out of the coalitions of folks that brought net neutrality to the table, that that brought platform accountability uh, measures to the table. And anybody who participates in social movements knows that social media has changed everything about organizing. It's made things like petition so automated that they're a completely useless tactic now. Uh, it's made uh, donations so easy to administer, uh, but it's added this entire proliferation of fake organizations and grift that it's, incre- it's incredible uh, if you start to look at how much fakery is out there. So social movements are not um, unaware of media manipulation, disinformation tactics, but the need for an organization that would kind of bring people together so that they can learn these tactics and, and understand what's happening when, um, when they're trying to launch a campaign, but they see other people sort of taking over either the hashtags or the search terms or, or attacking the activists. Um, so it's, it's, just, it's just the recognition, I think, of this new terrain or this new kind of information war. You know, social, Sastra Kostanzichuk writes about this and, and uh, her book Design Justice is a really good example of this, which is that social movements had a first mover advantage because 
they got online, even the left with indie media had a, had a good advantage over what it meant to do online media and like cover protests. But it, as time has worn on, um, uh, other kinds of provocateurs, other kinds of political agents, operatives, foreign entities have all figured out that these tactics work. And so I uh, wasn't surprised during the whistleblower testimony to hear her mention Chinese government and espionage uh, using Facebook to track the Uyghur population. Like that's, that's a big deal. Uh, that's a huge allegation to make against the platform that another government is able to use it for surveillance. Does that mean that the Chinese government is wrong or does that mean the platform is built so poorly to protect privacy that, that the technology itself is a liability to its users? Um, could be both, right? Uh, and then what it points us to obviously is also an indictment, I think, of things we know but cannot say, which is the way in which U.S. entities use uh, social media, uh, you know, police, police and FBI use social media to, to track activists and, and other folks across platforms. Rob, I want to come back to you just for a second on you're one of the co-authors of, of, of this uh, influential book, you know, Network uh, Propaganda. Um, can how, how does this kind of connect to the maybe the more traditional media ecosystem, these these ideas? Um, can you imagine this uh, world of, of, of proposed middleware or decentralization um, as, as a, you know, somehow uh, working in conversation with the traditional media ecosystem? Would it be a, a good or a bad thing to move in this direction uh, based on the current media landscape we've got? That's a great question. And I think it's in many ways it mirrors the larger media ecosystems and it, it would just exacerbate the echo chambers, if anything. It would certainly acknowledge them and I think acknowledging them is helpful. But were we to have middleware providers, the only question is whether it's going to be Fox News, Breitbart or Infowars, which is having a greater sway over the content that's seen on social media platforms amongst conservative audiences uh, might not matter all that much. But I think what it would do is it would reinforce the existing um, divisions within the media world that we see now. Joan, any perspective on that from your seat? Yeah, I mean, we've dealt with, you know, media consolidation in the past. We definitely have a different order of it within the sense that, you know, there is this divorced, you know, the, the people that are distributing the content are not the exact people making the content, which is uh, a little bit different. That's what Section 230 was supposed to encourage some of this proliferation of these distribution systems. But now we're in a situation where we do have several dominating news outlets as well as Facebook in particular that is trying to hide how just how powerful and how dominant these entities really are. And, uh, you know, I've read a lot about Andrew Breitbart, what his vision was for Breitbart and, um, you know, his 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 work. And I do believe that one of his axioms that uh, inspires a lot of the people that are, that were part of Stop the Steal, I do really believe that 
you know, politics is uh, downstream of culture. And, and I think that culture is actually downstream of infrastructure. And so as a result, I think that if we can deal with this as an infrastructure problem, we're dealing with something really different. I do not think that we should empower these companies to grow to such a massive scale on the rationale that they would then do a better job of content moderation because they're not and they're huge. And so I think it's actually better to have many, 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 many competitors where um, the damage that could be done uh, by any one disinformer or media manipulator uh, would be, it would just be much more expensive and resource heavy for them to try to do it across so many different platforms where people are getting their news and information and connecting with their friends. And so, um, and this is because I see the effects of deplatforming someone like, uh, you know, Nick Fuentes or Ethan Ralph or, or Alex Jones is once they have to go to these second, third tier, fourth tier platforms, um, streaming platforms, they are just not that important. But the tools that are built into YouTube around monetization, as well as the tools that are built into reminding people that so-and-so is going live at eight o'clock, um, actually builds a much, much larger audience. Those audiences don't travel with them. They, they get cut in half almost instantaneously. And by the time they're at some cut rate app that barely works, uh, they have very little influence. And so, uh, and you can think of Milo Yiannopoulos, for instance, once they get off of these big platforms, they're just not as dominant as they were um, when they had access to these bigger platforms. So I don't, I think, I think bigger is badder, uh, in our, in this instance. Well, I want to thank you uh, both so much. I'm respectful of your time. We've run up on the hour. Um, I'm very grateful to both of you for joining today. You've, uh, both, uh, complicated the picture, but that was the goal, but also made it uh, richer with this discussion of, uh, mis and disinformation in particular. So thank you so much. Where can folks find you, Joan and you, Rob? You can go to mediamanipulation.org. That's where most of our writing is. Excellent. Yeah. Thank you, Justin. Really appreciate you inviting us. Thank you. Thank Um, you both. Thank you. That's it for this special episode from the October 7th Tech Policy Press event, Reconciling Social Media and Democracy. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to our panelists. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.